Now this evening we look at Cantos 18, verse 67, to Cantos 22. That is the heavens of Jupiter and Saturn. Start again. I don't want to repeat it. <laughs> Shall I make Is that okay? All right, I'll start again. Sorry about that. Tonight we look at Cantos 18, verse 67, to Canto 22. That is, the heavens of Jupiter and Saturn. The heaven of Jupiter, with its symbol of the eagle, has been taken over the years as the episode. Start again, sorry. I, I, I apologize. You'll have to do a lot of editing, I'm afraid. I'm sorry about that. Right, we start yet again, third time lucky. Cantos 18, verse 67 to 22, the heavens of Jupiter and Saturn. The heaven of Jupiter, the symbol of the eagle, has been taken over the years as the episode in which Dante provided the reader with the keys to the political interpretation of his poem. However, it is perfectly possible, as will be shown, to lay aside the often crude commentaries associated with Freemasonry, which were floated in Italy in the 19th century during the Risorgimento, and his nation's struggle towards political unity. It was then a time when enthusiasts seized hold of the poet's condemnation of ecclesiastical interference with temporal rule at the expense of the greater panoramic grasp that he had wished to communicate. That is, that the realm of Caesar had been sapped with the Roman Church's vision of the kingdom through political ambition, greed, avarice and malice and made a mockery of St. Peter's Sea. Mazzini, Garibaldi, Rossetti and their followers could not forgive the papacy's grasping at territorial and political power in Italy that had resulted in the, political, in the papal states. Pio Nonno, or Pius IX, eventually retreated behind the walls of the Vatican and proclaim papal infallibility. And this retreat built up over the years a void between the sacred and the secular in Italian life. And Vatican II hoped in time to heal that, um, that break between the sacred and the secular. A few notes on the political interpretations. By the time of the Renaissance, the commentaries that had been written on the Commedia 
reveal a curious fact. They indicate Western Europe's, as opposed to the Orthodox East, gradual loss of the spiritual for the political and the secular. Writers of the commentaries became ever increasingly concerned with Dante's political views and judgments, as if they were unable to crack the shell of the literal tale and feed on the inner kernel. Dante's son Jacopo knew two essential facts from his father and recorded them in his commentary. First of all, Beatrice had been an historical person and was not just an idea in his father's <coughs> mind. This is an important point because um, during um, the Romantic period, with interpretations like that of um, um, Gabriele Rossetti, um, it was accepted that um, Beatrice was just uh, an idea representing philosophy or, or monarchy or politics or whatever. And it was when um, people looked back to uh, the very early commentaries, they realised that Beatrice had actually lived. Secondly, in Jacobo's commentary, the writer says that the characters which populate hell and purgatory were not so much historical personages as examples of vices and virtues. Jacobo is emphatic that the poem is a meditation on the three moral states of man. And he says that his father's aim is di dimostrare sotto, di sotto allegorico colore le tre qualità dell'umana generazione to demonstrate under uh, allegorical colour the three qualities of humankind. He says, for exam example, understand the allegory. That is the important thing, the allegory of the poem. For example, clearly his father's sleepy heaviness in Canto I of the Inferno represents ignorance of the spiritual worlds, and the valley, valley in which he wanders is the baseness of ignorance, whilst the sun represents the clarity of truth, and so on. Such matters, says Jacobo, are applicable to us all. And by tying down his tail to the flow of what we could, could call today news in the media, Dante had shown, according to his son, how the spiritual life is not so much a far-off dream to be lived out in a monastery or a convent. It is rather, here and now, relevant to all the lives about us and being played out on the stage of life's commedia. And Dante's early readers became incensed by much that was in the poem, both religious and political, and not least who's who, and where they had been placed in the afterlife. Relatives often felt slandered, and some were hopping mad with anger. 
Here was a poem not written in Latin, but in the tongue of the day. All could read it and hear it read at gatherings. It takes little imagination to grasp how the tale was received and discussed. Dante had made sure that his poem would not be forgotten. Writing in the vernacular was one thing, but the characters which populate, populate the tale were a ploy that was a stroke of genius which made sure that succeeding generations would discuss the poem. Was Francesca as bad as all that? Just think of the horribleness of her husband. Wouldn't you have done the same thing in her place? Just think of dying of starvation with your sons locked up in a tower by an archbishop. Would you not want to chew his blasted head off? The characters populating the Commedia are the shell of the tale, and generations have spilt a lot of ink on them. Who's who in the Commedia is still big business. And yet commentators, the early ones that is, recognise that there was an authority lying behind the tale, something enduring, of relevance. But it was hard for them to say just what it was. By the time of Quattrocento Florence, the poem was interpreted as a political statement on the events of the day. The role of France, the rise of tyrants through banking, conspiracies, murders, poisonings, republican views, religious corruption and prophetical reform, Savonarola for example. The whole bustle of daily Florentine life was in the poem. And so the Commedia defined a situation known to Dante and by the Quattrocento it was being redefined by the flow of time in those days. No more so than with the case of Brutus and Cassius suffering in the mouths of Lucifer. Surely it's the other way round. Caesar is the villain and his murderers the heroes for they liberated a people from despotism. This was the argument of the day. We can already see in the 15th century how by the time of the 19th century the revolutionary spirit would come to interpret Dante. The allegory of the tale was being lost for actualities of the day. In line with St Peter's first epistle, for Dante the figurehead of Caesar derived its role and authority from God. Furthermore, Rome was the centre of Dante's understanding of a universal history. In time, the Roman Empire of the Caesars will become the Holy Roman Empire with its emperors. The Church and the Empire were divinely established institutions for the spiritual and the political well-being of nations. Thus, to overthrow through betrayal the representatives of church or empire merited the punishment 
of the three archetypal traitors in the mouth of Lucifer. For Dante, there would have been for us an interesting parallel here between Charles I and Cromwell. Cromwell would surely have been chewed up and ground up in one of Lucifer's mouths along with Cassius and Brutus. The most famous of the Renaissance commentaries, that of Cristoforo Landino, printed first of all in 1487, then it went through various editions, does at last introduce a Neoplatonic approach to the poem. But the spiritual dimensions of the Commedia, on the whole, had been lost. Late in the next century, the Counter-Reformation saw the rise of Tasso's Gerusalemme Liberata, 1580. This, with its nostalgic imagery, ensured the demise of Dante. Such would be the case unto the age of revolution and romanticism, when our poet was reinstated as the prophet of a reunited Italy, a country free from dominance, be it of Spain, Austria, France, or the Vatican. Dante also became the source for sorrowful, melancholic, pre-Raphaelite, sickly women. Gabriele Rossetti, père, could not read a word like, for example, Amor, without turning it into Roma. Whilst his son, Dante Gabriel, react against, reacted against his father's political interpretation of the Commedia and became lost in the thickets and briars of the passionate life. Dante the Pilgrim had been forgotten for the shells and fragments of his tale. And we had to wait for Edmund Gardner, Charles Williams, Dorothy Sayers and others to draw us back to the Commedia's true sources as understood by the poet's own son, Jacobo. The next heading is the Heavenly Eagle. The light emanating from Jupiter contrasts the ruddiness of Mars. It is pure white. In the Convivio, the second book, chapter 14, Dante quotes Ptolemy. Jupiter is a star of temperate complexion, midway between the coldness of Saturn and the heat of Mars. This temperance, figuratively associated with Jupiter, is clemency and mercy, strength without the rigour, might and constraint of Mars. It is the mercy, hesed in Hebrew, of God, which envelopes all the heavens, including ourselves. This quality of mercy is known through tempering the passions and curbing foolish actions. It is learnt through meditative rest. 
Hence, the commandment associated with this heaven is the need to keep the Sabbath holy, a day set apart from the labours of the week to be with and rest in the Lord. In the context of the wise ruler, clemency comes close to charity, for temperance prompts us to do good to our neighbour and to prevent evil. The souls of Jupiter appear as lights flying through the air like birds, and note that in this heaven all the similes are taken from bird life. Just as birds wheel and sing over their food, so do the wise find their meat in clement mercy. The flight of the souls spells out to Dante the opening words of the wisdom of Solomon. Deligite justitiam qui judicatis teram. Love righteousness, ye that judge the earth. Carroll, in his commentary, suggests that the perfect kingdom cannot be spelt out by one man or one generation. It has to be spelt out letter by letter. Each righteous ruler in every land and age contributing his share. That quotation comes from Carroll's excellent, I think very beautiful exposition of the Paradiso. The title of the book is In, is In Patria an exposition of Dante's Paradiso, and it was published in London in 1911, and the quotation you will find on page 283. All the souls then form themselves around the final letter in the sequence, M. That is, the final letter of Teram the earth. Heaven, Dante tells us, becomes like silver inlaid with gold. The M is rightly taken as standing for monarchia on the political level. And this is where commentaries usually cease, forgetting that Dante would remind us there is also the anagogical interpretation hidden beneath the veils of the imagery. But first let us remind ourselves of the various transformations that the letter M goes through. You are rec recommended to consult diagrams in the various commentaries. The souls of the rulers of our world cluster around the central top of the medieval M, possibly already suggesting to Dante a lily shape, though he makes no reference to this. Reference to this. <coughs> like sparks from a burning log, the souls form themselves into the head of an eagle, each soul taking the rank allotted to it in proportion according to its righteousness. 
Now Dante beholds the lily that transforms itself into an eagle, presumably rather like a phoenix coming out of flames. Thus, on a political historical level of interpretation, you can say that the earth should be governed by a righteous monarchia. The lily was an emblem of Florence, indeed also of France, and it is a symbol that represents purity as well as the true Israel. And as such, it is the eagle of the true empire. The above may easily be construed as a nonsense unless it is realised that Dante is beholding the archetype of government. All city-states, such as Florence, nations and countries, with their various governments, appropriate to their land, aspire to the archetype, the form and law of the divine will. Dante would add that just as the Church has a representative in the figure of the Pope, then the peoples of the world should likewise have an emperor, a focal point. Dante has transposed Byzantine concepts onto the Holy Roman Empire. The worldly force dreamt up by Charlemagne and his followers with the aid of the German popes and who set up in opposition to the ancient empire of Constantinople, the new Rome, their own Holy Roman Empire. However, at this point, it is good to lay aside the political level of interpretation for the clarity of the anagogical upon which any political interpretation should doubtly rest and emanate from. So let us go back to this letter M. It is the world, it is earth, it is teram. It is like clay or wood, highly in Greek, ideally ideal to be moulded, carved, and made according to the spirit who hovers over the waters of the creation. Matter is in this sense materia prima. It is pure. It is lily-like. And the last letter of Teram is the first of Maria, the handmaid of the Lord, within whom the Lord incarnated himself through the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, who is fire, Pentecost. We could add that a vase of lilies is often placed in paintings between Mary and the Archangel Gabriel, depicting the Annunciation. From Mary came the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, who taught by word and deed the true life. And the eagle is a symbol of precisely this, 
Furthermore, the eagle is able, in traditional law, to fly towards the sun without ever becoming blind and ever beholding its light. Jesus Christ is the true eagle from whom all true vision comes. And to the medieval mind, the fact that St. John took Mary home with him after the crucifixion and that his emblem is the eagle would have suggested to Dante's age that Mary and John are the beginning of the church. The true church, that is, the faithful allowing the Christ to be born in their hearts. Also, Mary, the soul, the womb, the heart, the throne, are all images suggested by her name. Mary is said to come from the Jewish verbal root for bitterness, Mara, implying that to become Mary-like is to become a witness, a martyr. That refers us back, of course, to the previous um, heaven of Mars. Mary is also the figure of justice because of her purity. As her song, the Magnificat, says, the Lord puts down the mighty from their seat and exalts the humble and meek. He fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away. The eagle is also St. John, the teacher of the Christian gnosis of love, the visionary, the one who knew. And the eagle, of course, as already implied, is an aspect of Christ. Christ, the eye of the eagle, through which the faithful have to pass. Hence the mystery of loving mercy, true justice and grace. Finally, the resurrection is like this heavenly bird growing from and transforming the earth, drawing all who will to the Beatitudes, that is to say, the way to the kingdom. <coughs> now, without the above inspiring feeding what is below, the world of politics is forever doomed. Our world and its politics are, are potentially the nest where the egg or true form of government may be born. Each of the righteous rulers of this heaven on earth struggle to govern well and institute his own perceived fragment from the wholeness of the archetypal righteousness. Canto 19 describes how all the souls making up the eagle speak with one voice Justice in union with mercy is not something we dream up alone. It is a divine attribute that would fill the world, and it is only learnt through humility. 
pride and prejudice being, of course, the enemies of mercy. The attribute of justice is mirrored down from the heaven above Jupiter, namely that of Saturn, the heaven of the contemplatives, presided over by the angelic order of the thrones, thrones implying judgment, which is the recipient of the divine illuminating light for the ministry of the orders of the seraphim and the cherubim. Dante is here insisting that our imitations of justice may come only through contemplation, for we need to become enlightened by the archetype and cannot in any way dream it up. We are incapable of judging in our own strength, for God alone is judge. Justice falls apart in our world when we think we can stand apart from God and are clever in our own right, mature in life's experiences and so on. All such attitudes of mine reflect the Luciferian sin. And so it is that Dante frames his thought as already um, hinted at last week with another threefold invocation of Christ. Christ alone being our true judge. That is in Canto uh, 19, the last word of 104, 106, 108. This is why the eagle sings for the sweet love of the Lord's paradise and mantles itself with a smile. 2013 or dolce amor che di riso tamanti. It does not mumble or pontificate like so many judges of this world. Dante then goes on to enumerate fearful Christian kings, all embodying during their lives the lack of justice. And among these we find Edward I, the hammer of the Scots. Canto 20 introduces another powerful image, the eye of the eagle, the eye which may figuratively gaze on the blazing sun. The eyebrow is made up of the brilliant souls of five righteous legions leaders, Trajan, Hezekiah, Constantine, William of Sicily, and Riffius. We cannot help but note that two pagans start and end Dante's heroes. At last he realizes that righteous pagans are in God's hand and saved. For Dante, Israel and Rome were two elect nations, one called to be his people in preparation for the incarnation, the other earthly temple empire that historically witnessed 
to the coming of the Messiah. Trajan climbed down from his horse and comforted the widow who had lost her son in battle, an act which for Dante was a sign of humility. Riffeus was a Trojan hero who Virgil described as a just and observe as just and observant of the right. Between these two we have Hezekiah, the king of Judah who repented of his ways, the Emperor Constantine who made Christianity the formal religion of the Roman Empire, and William II of Sicily, a Norman king remembered as the good. These five thus may be said to represent respectively humility, pe penitence, the establishing of the true faith, goodness and the just observance of righteousness. Such are the qualities that should be found in the leaders of nations. The shining pupil of the eye is King David's soul. Seventy-three psalms of the Psalter are attributed to David. Not only was, a, was he an ancestor of our Lord, but the author of prayers which are still used today by Jews and Christians. And remember, his songs charmed away the evil spirit from Saul. Furthermore, he could dance in ecstasy before the ark. He was also inspired to relate in his psalms all the states of the soul as it struggles in the spiritual life. We also find in the psalms prophecies of the passion. Indeed, the, the psalms were the, pra the prayers of the Lord himself. The Psalms are the eye, in other words, by which we behold the Lord God. And this is the eye of the heart. It looks upwards towards the spiritual Son in faith, the essential quality of the Psalms. It does not look down. However, the gifts flowing from faith flow down to the lower heavens, and are essential to them. Dante is teaching us that nothing may be accomplished without prayer and faith, not least regarding the worldly responsibilities of government. Dante's archetype is uncompromising. Prayer opens for us the depths of the divine mercy upon which is built his kingdom. Boccaccio tells us in his life of Dante that after the poet's death, the last 13 cantos of the Paradiso were found to be missing. Friends found it hard to believe that God had allowed Dante to die without completing his great work. After about eight months, 
Dante's faithful son, Jacopo, thought of, for completion's sake, he would attempt to finish the work himself. However, a dream was granted him, in which his father appeared before him. Dante appeared to his son in the whitest garments, with his face shining with light. Jacopo, in surprise, asked his father whether he was still alive. Yes, came the answer, in the true life, that is. His son went on to ask whether he had ever finished the last thirteen cantos. Yes, was the answer. And at this, Dante took his son, this is always in a dream, into his old bedroom and pointed to a small carpet which hung covering a small recess. The dream then ceased. And next day it was discovered that behind the carpet in the recess were the missing cantors. Whether true or not, it's a fantastic story and I like it. And it's the sort of dimension, isn't it, that people at that time lived on, where dreams, as we've seen, if you've read the Vita Nuova and the Divina Commedia, dreams are very important. Dreams can be, of course, bad, but they can also be prophetical and healing. This brings us to the heaven Saturn. <coughs> Cantos 21 and 22. Standing in awe, but looking up with faith, leads naturally to prayerful contemplation. The poet's second vision of Christ, which is granted whilst he is in uh, the heaven of, of, um, um, of Jupiter, serves to emphasize the sacredness of the Lord's name to which we are called to remember deep within the heart. And so it is that the heaven of Saturn is where the first rung of Jacob's dream, the ladder of Jacob's dream, begins, the ladder of divine ascent. The Ladder of Divine Ascent is the title of a book by St. John Climacus, a spiritual classic. It would not have been known to Dante, um, because it hadn't been translated from the Greek in those days, but the substance of it would have been known in the, the monastic tradition. The, la the Ladder was not translated into Latin until the years preceding the Council of Florence, about 1438-39, it was the work of the Calmoldese monk Ambrogio Travesari. So, we must, coming back to my main text, we must imagine Dante and Beatrice standing before this ladder of ascent. For Dante, prayerful, prayerful contemplation 
should precede action. A balanced, active life depends on this right attitude of mind. In other words, all our actions should be the result of right knowledge, whereby words and thoughts have been pruned through prayer for God's will to be done. Saturn is said to be the cold planet, symbolizing the contemplative soul is called to die to the passionate life. Thus, in this heaven, true consciousness is awoken, and thereby the knowing of God's presence in the whole of creation. The Logoi, all about us, are heard calling us. They are recognized and known and therefore sing in our hearts their magical hymns. The leaf, the branch, the tree, the roots, the earth, the grass, the flowers, the birds, and their nests, the seasons, all sing the hymn of creation. Rather like if you turn up in your prayer book for matins, you have the Benedicity, the song of the three children in the burning furnace. Contemplation teach us to look with the eye of the heart. Don't forget, symbolized already in Jupiter by the pupil of the eye being the Psalms of <coughs> King David. Contemplation teaches us to look with the eye of the heart and to behold the divine presence all about us we learn that we too stand before the burning bush. What we have beheld has to be taken back into the heart and integrated through prayerful contemplation. Thus it is that faith and knowledge are held in the heart but then given back to God through prayer. Contemplation requires silence, and silence is both the diet of the soul and the fence protecting wisdom from its enemies. Once in this heaven, Dante no longer hears the symphony, the harmony of the, sphere, of, of the heavens, the spheres. He has reached the still point of silence from which all true music or sound is born. All attributes such as awe, beauty, goodness, peace, love and union originate in this silence. Their appreciation returns the beholder to their source. True music, therefore, these are ideas that Dante took from Boethius. True music, therefore, originates from the silence and returns us to it once the performance has been completed. This is the deep mystery of contemplative prayer. May I add, it's also the deep mystery of music. We listen to a string quartet. Suddenly, Haydn's music recedes into silence and in the silence 
the music, as it were, is returned to its source from whence it came. In our world, the heaven of Saturn is known as the faithful walk onwards with and to Christ, he who stands before us. And this is for us a state of holy insecurity, the intimate life of the dialogue with our Lord, in which nothing may be grasped at, but only shared. The heaven of Saturn also implies that the essence of the law is to be found in the deep resonance within the silence of our innermost life. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is this, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. The contemplative way tries the very reins of our being. Our prayer must be compassionate and for all mankind. The knowing that comes through spiritual growth leads us on to eventually, to, to eventually recognise that we of ourselves know nothing, and that all knowledge comes from the Lord through the grace of the Holy Spirit. He daily reveals himself as the way, the life, and the truth. The law is not dead, graven on stone tablets, but alive and embodied in him who is where soever he will be. That's the essence, of course, if I may um, go away from my text for a moment, the essence of the divine name that's revealed to Moses at the burning bush. God basically says to him, I will be there. Get on with it. No, I've told you what to do. Go back to Egypt and uh, liberate my people and take them to the promised land. I will be there. I'm with you. And it's the same with our, ourselves, you know. Um, Get on with it, John. Get up to London. Do your lecture. I would be there. And it's this... I mean, that's from... That sounds profane, but it's the same with each and every one of us. It's this realisation that God will be there and is there as he is already present here and now. And we, through the Eucharist, are taken up into the mystical body. No wonder at the start of Canto 21, Beatrice turns to her lover with the warning that if she should smile, he would be sheared as was Semele. That's um, 21 lines 4 to 6. It is folly, what is, being, what is implied here, it is folly to be curious about the divine mystery. Her smile would have revealed to Dante the truth of the contemplative life, a truth which is, he is not yet ready to behold. And he explains in the Convivio, in Book 3, 15, that 
that the eyes of wisdom are her demonstrations whereby the truth is seen with the greatest certainty and her smile is her persuasions hereby the light of wisdom is shown beneath her veil that's a paraphrase of Dante's words this is the heaven that the spirit of negation loves to attack as the early fathers realized the voices of the vices love to invade the contemplative and rightly the wisdom of ages teaches us that it is wrong to presume to live our life alone with the presumption that we may develop ourselves spiritually we need friendship our family good teachers the law the call to live the monastic life comes only to a few and hermits are very rare they leave their communities to seek out their cave or hut only with the blessing and watchful eye of their brethren the heaven of the contemplative above all requires humility <coughs> and presumption is its downfall just as there is light by day and the absence of light by night so there are periods of light for the contemplative and periods of darkness the paradox that in the dark the paradox is that it is in the darkness that we actually grow in faith this fact was realized by Michelangelo who it is said kept beside him always two books the Bible and the Commedia his 62nd sonnet which John Addington Simmons appropriately entitles Sacred Night concludes Malombro sol a pianta l'uomo serve dunque le notte più chiur di son sante quante l'uomo più but only darkness serves for human seeds night therefore is more sacred far than day since man excels all fruits however fair Stanley, this poem for those of you who go to um, Florence is one of the keys for helping you to interpret the symbolic significance of the Medici tombs. By day we see and hear the hymn of creation all about us. The night too has its chorus of sounds and the shining heavens above. The contemplative has to see and hear the song of the night when all comforts seem to be absent. It is then that he learns the difference between fantasy and the imagination. And later he will struggle with the difference between the imagination and the true intellect, the noose. Inner voices give way to images and images give way to the darkness that is, albeit known, the light.
and so it is that eventually day and night find balance in the silence known in the heart from which will flow sheer joy. Just as Jacob saw angels ascending and descending the ladder in his dream, so the saints may descend the ladder to counsel and help the faithful. And two saints descend to counsel Dante. They are St. Benedict, the founder of Western monasticism, who lived approximately from 450 to approximately 550. That's 100 years, I know, but some, somewhere between those dates. And St. Peter Damian, Damian, sorry, the Calmoldese monk whose order was founded by St. Romuald in about, um, who lived in about 950 <coughs> and died in 1027. So Romuald adapted the Benedict rule to the eremitic er life. And Dante clearly here understands the Benedict tra tradition to be the authentic thread in, the Western, in Western monasticism if I may stray from my text, in the prophecies about the popes, the last pope is said to be uh, a Benedictine. After that, we are told, the true Peter shall be revealed. You say Malachi or Malachi, but you know who I mean. The friend of St. Bernard, the Irishman who wrote all these prophecies about the remaining popes. According to Aquinas, who followed Richard of St. Victor's teaching, although the contemplative life is perfected in one single act of contemplation, we ascend to this act through thought, cogitatio, and meditative consideration, meditatio, in order to arrive at contemplation proper. Thus, according to this approach, it is with the gift of thought that we struggle with our imaginative faculties, enabling images received from the senses to be converted into mental forms and ideas. Reason is the gift that comes to the fore during those moments of meditative consideration when we search out the principles of certain thoughts. The organ of contemplation, however, is the intellect, nous, the faculty given us and through which one, intuit one intuitively sees the truth for which we have struggled with our thoughts and considerations. True contemplation is like becoming a mirror until the image focused is reflected in us. For example, when we contemplate an icon, say of a saint, the eye of the heart becomes like a mirror, so the saint represented by the icon is mirrored in us. In this sense, St. Nicholas or St. Catherine, through the icon, stand before us. We are in that, their presence. Something like this is going on at, in Dante's soul as he is in meeting these two saints.
St. Peter Damien descends to Dante as he struggles to meditate on all Beatrice reveals to him. He is still at the stage of thought and reasoning and will have to ascend further up the ladder before he may contemplate the deeper mysteries of heaven. That's why we pause at the end of this lecture and take up uh, again the lectures at the beginning of next term when we have the three lectures which will which actually were fit, fit together and are the, the deeper mysteries of heaven, according to Dante. Dante stresses that as he looked up the ladder, it disappeared from his sight, that all the light of heaven poured down it towards him. Dante still will not let go with his questioning concerning predestination only to be told yet again that he is wasting his time, for it is a mystery beyond our ken, and we will know the answer only after our death. Now Peter Damien, 1007 to 1072, was born in Ravenna, that is the city that was the poet's home for his later years and he came under the influence of St. Romuald's Calmoldesi order and was strongly attracted to the Eremitic life. And he became the abbot of Fonte Avellana, a fantastic place I've been there, hidden in the Apennines, miles from everywhere, with very tricky roads to negotiate to get there. And there is a tradition that Dante stayed at Fonte Avellana during his ex exile for a time and was shocked at the order's decadence. Peter Damien was constantly being called back into the world to ease polit ecclesiastical disputes. He was even made a cardinal. But why does this strict, overpowering monk with a whip of a tongue now come to Dante. It's because Damien's condemnation of corruption in the church during his own lifetime echoes Dante's own. Both men were horrified at the church's political intrigues and corruption. Amusingly, Peter Damien even disapproved of bishops playing chess. Goodness knows what Dante thought of chess though with his particular twist of mind, I'm sure he would easily have recognised the traditional symbolism of the game. Whilst Peter Dem Damien has spoken out against the sad estate of St Peter's Church, the light of many other souls gather about them and with a roar of approval lend their support to the word spoken. To Dante it was like a thunderclap. Nor did I understand it, so did the thunder overcome me. Line 20, um, Canto 21, line 142. Beatrice quickly reassures Dante by emphasising the total holiness of Saturn's heaven. It is a place where the sins of the worldly church 
quickly and immediately bring censorship through a righteous anger. He is encouraged once more to behold the souls about him. St. Benedict approaches. Dante, in response to Benedict's monastic rule, <coughs> keeps total silence until spoken to. That must have been very hard for Dante, to keep total silence. The founder of Western monasticism eventually praises the ideal of the ascetic life. Dante inquires whether he will ever be given the grace to behold the saints as they truly are in paradise, face to face, rather than all these simple clusters of fiery love. Then the saint assures the poet that his yearning will enable him to climb the, the ladder to where his desire will be fulfilled. Benedict adds support to Peter Damien's criticisms. He laments that in the world few now lift their feet to climb the ladder of true contemplation. Indeed, his rule has become waste paper. You know, about Dante's time, when monks were binding books, they often used um, <laughs> rule, the rule of St. Benedict, a manuscript written out, or um, an early text. And one of the waves that we've been able to rediscover lost texts is to undo the bindings of the monks and rediscover these precious um, papers um, that where they used in the binding. Uh, Benedict goes on, usury has corrupted the monastic life and flesh has become weak through the lack of prayer, fasting and humility. At last Beatrice thrusts Dante up the rungs of the ladder. Lines, uh, twen uh, Canto 22, lines 106 to 108, Read, I tell you, as I hope to meet the triumph of God's holy ones once again, when weeping for my sins, my breast I beat. Dante now ascends to the heaven of the fixed stars, entering via the sign of his birth, Gemini. In a moment of profound symbolism, he looks down past the planets and the stars, the seeming insignificance of our world, the dramatic stage of the Commedia's seen and unseen warfare. It is possible to think once more of Dante turning upside down as he clambered down the shaggy, grimy ice, flank, ice flanks of <coughs> Lucifer, denoting his total metanoia, his total change of heart and his rejection of sin for the living God. Now it could be said that Dante has a profound intuition, which is this, that we in this world see things inside out. It is only through climbing, and puri climbing the purifying cornices of purgatory and on reaching the garden of earth innocence and thus at last to ascend through the heavens that we begin to see the order of things the right way round, that is, in their true perspective and dimension. 
At last the kernel is on the outside and somewhere down there, far, far, far below, are the cracked shells. But the shells scattered in this our sinful world may still be found to conceal parts of the kernel sweet to taste and destined to evoke in us a nostalgia for paradise. And finally, the commandment. What is inner secret of this heaven? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Surely not. For the deep devotion of all contemplation is the remembrance of the Lord's name in the heart. It is this remembrance which then flows out through all the heavens like the yeast necessary to raise the dough. The heart throb of the mystical body is nothing less than the rhythmic petition of the prayer of the name Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, the sinner.